How does where we're born influence our beliefs? What would it be like to live in a world run by women where it's perpetually night and the dead can speak to the living? In this episode, we discuss the new season of HBO's True Detective, Night Country, with award-winning cinematographer Florian Hofmeister. Most known for his work on Tar, Pachinko, Great Expectations, and most recently, True Detective. He's also known for his collaboration with director Terence Davies on the films The Deep Blue Sea and A Quiet Passion. His work on Great Expectations earned him a primetime Emmy and a BAFTA in cinematography, and in 2022, he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for his work on Tar. Florian Hofmeister, welcome back to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Last time we did the interview and you were just about to leave for Iceland, where True Detective Season 4 was filmed. However, it's set in Alaska. Just for those who are not familiar, who've maybe not seen any of the earlier seasons, just tell us how Season 4 relates to Nick Pizzolazzo's initial creation and this new Season 4. Set it up for us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, season one was a legendary moment in the history of television and entertainment because I think it was one of the very first shows that hired two A-list stars, which was Woody Harrelson. And the great Michael Mulhanahy. Directed by Gary Fukunaga. It, it really made a big splash because it was very moody. Not necessarily the case was in the foreground, but the relationship between these two cops. It was regarded very cinematic. And it was a huge success. So what I think they have done in the past in season two and three and then now in four is it's regarded an anthology that uses the same setup. So you have at the center, you have two cops. You know, most of them will be very exposed actors. And in essence, the, the show deals with lots of themes and not just the case at hand. So, you know, the struggle, the personal relationships between the two cops and uh, a certain degree of mysteriousness. Those, I think, are the, the trademarks that I could comment on. Obviously, I didn't write it. It was uh, a Mexican writer-director called Isa Lopez who wrote and who showrun the entire uh, series in the six parts we shot. So it, I would say it, you can regard it as an anthology that bases itself on the same principles. And in this season, it will be Jodie Foster and slightly lesser known actress, I think that will change after this, called Kaylee Rice. Yes, Kaylee Rice, a, a revelation. I didn't know her, I have to say, and I loved going into it not knowing. I love anything that Jodie Foster is in, just with that energy, and we just want to watch her all the time. And you know, I'm you know, creating this mysterious setting in this night world. I, I didn't know she was a professional boxer as well. I just see this energy every moment as she's not acting. She has this sense, this pursuit of justice. So I definitely want to see her in anything else she does. But it's called Night Country. And as I'm watching it, I don't want to give away too much. It's a series, a television show. I feel like it's a long film. And I feel like we're in the underworld. Uh, as you say, Isa Lopez is the Mexican showrunner. I feel like it's almost a Mexican film. It just happens to be in English. It's hard to tell if some of the characters are actually alive or if they're ghosts. This is my interpretation. I kept on having to ask myself, are these characters uh, between uh, like a purgatory almost? It feels like it's the end of the world. Well, you said it beautifully. I can only concur. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because I felt exactly the same. And that drew me to the scripts. You know, obviously, they're very well crafted in the terms of genre. You know, the case proceeds. You ask yourself what's happening. From episode to episode, you get more hints. So there's uh, that scene that just kind of clocks along like, you know, like a drumbeat. 
And that kept me very engaged on this genre level. But then there were these elements of the supernatural, the reappearance of some of these characters, the dead characters. And when we were shooting it, I sometimes thought the beauty about collaboration between a director and a cinematographer and a production designer and all these key people is that I am more and more convinced this the conscious happening and there's also the subconscious happening. And I think Lisa Lopez, she brought a lot of her Mexican sensibility, obviously, to the piece. And she has a very dark humor. And she said, well, I don't know if you can say it generally about Mexicans, but I think it has been quoted in the past from other Mexican directors. Who say they laugh because pain and struggle and life are so close connected in Mexican culture. You know, they, the country is having all these big wars about drugs there's so much violence and yet they are such beautifully humorous people at least the ones that i've met and especially isa she's a beautiful person so i think it's beautiful that we say there's a theme of it almost felt like a mexican film because to me the same thing happened you know the, the cacophony of color way that the sets were designed i think that it played a lot into the cinema that takes place south of the u.s border yes and haven't yet seen tigers are not afraid which is a previous film of hers but in that film as i understand there's a sense of a fight for justice for children you mentioned legacy of the mexican and drug cartels and effect on children so we see uh, now in night country some of these battles for the justice for the indigenous people who are fighting for uh, their environment and you have uh, coming into conflict. This is like a central a fight of indigenous rights, the land rights, and what is being lost, the fight for holding on to their culture. It's also asked so many questions without making it a full-on debate. It was a conversation for me about faith, what you believe, this questioning, are there things that are miraculous beyond our knowledge? But it was just as a question, as I saw it, the characters question themselves. Maybe you could set up for us a little bit like the opposition between, as you mentioned, Jodie Foster's and, and Rice's characters. They have different views of faith and what justice might mean. Well, I think it's absolutely spot on what you say that even though you haven't seen the film yet, but if you go back and watch Tigers, I'm not afraid. Lots of these themes are part of Issa's fabric. And I thought, you know, when you work and shoot these things, Obviously, there is the tall tale, the genre bit, the case that you have to take care of visually. But the stuff that excites me and that became more and more centerpiece are these other themes. For example, one of the themes to me is the transient nature of life up there. You know, we're telling a story in a part of the world where, you know, constant settlement in terms of static settlement is only possible since the Industrial Revolution. Because normally the indigenous cultures were living and communicating with the land in a whole different way than what was introduced to that part of the world with its industrial exploitation. So what does it mean if we go up there and we want to work at a mine, we need to heat the workplace, we need to heat the car, we need to heat the apartment, we need electricity, and we keep the light on all the time because that the entire piece takes place in what they call the dark night, you know, when basically you'll have only two or three or in some parts, the more north you get, no sunlight at all. And it was an interesting creative decision for me uh, or a creative challenge to embrace, you know, how is lighting has a whole different utility and necessity than just regular light. You know, if I come home at night here in Berlin, I might switch on a few lights and some of my decisions will, of course, be aesthetic. Because I'm a cinematographer, so I like my place to look in a certain way. Now, if you live in darkness, your relationship with lighting changes. 
So we had a couple of locations that were public locations. We had a big location called the Ice Ring with the police station. And I kind of figured, and actually I then experienced myself, if you live in darkness, you tend to overlight. So you'll switch on every light there because you're literally craving light and you don't want your workspace during the day to be moody and dark. So obviously, if you take the genre as a starting point, moody lighting is very awoke. You know, you would say, oh, it's a dark story. So we'll go dark. But I thought, no, actually, I can't go dark all the time because people live differently. In Alaska, they keep their cars running because in the fear of having the engine freeze. So if you go to the supermarket and it's minus 20, you'll keep your car running whilst you're inside. Because if you switch the car off, the engine might freeze and you can't restart it. So, you know, there's a whole different way to deal with what we take very commonly as the achievements of our industrialized living environments. And I wanted that to be reflected in the lighting. So when they were in the police station, when they were in the ice rink, it was really bright, basically switched everything on. Also, I felt that the piece needed, you know, when you have a regularly shot film. And I want to say one thing, I really appreciate your comment that it feels like a whole film. Because that's how we, in essence, shot it, even though it's split up in these episodes. But in a normal film, you have sequences that play in outside in the day, then you go. So there's a fluctuation of different visualities. And I felt that I wanted to create the same, but only with artificial light. So you needed a, a passage that was very bright. And then you go into the driving sequences when they drive out in the snow and then it's really, really dark. But I, I think you needed the juxtaposition in the, you know, it's like music. You needed like a wave tight to be high up and then low and quiet. So the lighting wanted to have these different shapes. That was, I think I derived from the setting and from the script. Oh, well, I just love how it works so seamlessly. And I did feel this the whole dream. And I just thought this might be an esoteric observation. But as I experienced this film, I feel like these, as you say, spiritual questions are throughout it as well. I feel like that's a metaphor that we actually know very little. And there's this great mysterious universe. So we have such little knowledge. What resonates with me is the, the description of feeling little because there was the other challenge. So we had established this idea of brightness and darkness. No, the other thing is when you're out there in Alaska, scale of landscape is, of course, something that would leave an imprint on you all the time and also should leave a lead imprint on the audience when they watch it. And that was technically quite an interesting challenge because we started trapping the series in summer in Iceland, which we shot for Alaska. And the first July, August, September, October, almost the first four months, it didn't get dark. It started to get dark in October because they have the endless summer. So we were prepping this and in the entire time we were walking the course, we were going out in the countryside and we were wrecking in these locations, but it's always bright. So you can see for miles. So it's a very, very impressive landscape. And we had to constantly remind ourselves, well, A, it will be dark. And B, it will be covered in snow, which will create a very different situation for lighting. Because when you light for night, if you have like a, a dark field or some darker tones, obviously the light that I will set will enlighten the characters. If you light at night in a snowfield, the first thing that will burn and catch up the light will be the snow. So it's actually the whole lighting Thing outside had to be tackled differently. So we did a lot of camera tests and I think there's some really exciting footage in there where we shot right on the blink, you know, where it looks where you can still see and you get the scale and you see some of the landscape, but it's almost disappearing into blackness. And then there's some other stuff we did is we 
basically some of these driving sequences when cars drive away or drive-bys, you would frame excessively big, even though you can't see anything, the car would be depicted small. So you get the sense of vastness, which that part of the world is. It's so interesting. The sense of vastness is what you say about preparing blind or just really <laughs> prepping in the day and working then at night. So how very strange and challenging, but I mean, that just shows your expertise. Another thing that just going back to the thematic, what's intriguing for me about this story, I kept on thinking it's been ages since I've seen it, but Werner Herzog's encounters at the end of the world, it's always stuck with me. In that film, we see all the penguins heading towards the feeding grounds at the edge of the ice, except one, and Herzog narrates that the penguin would neither go with the other penguins to the edge of the ice or return to the colony, but just kept heading towards the interior of the vast continent with 5,000 kilometers ahead of him. And we see the penguin stops and takes one last look at his colony before leaving for the mountains far away, headed for certain death. And I guess I thought of this because some of the characters in Night Country seem to be drawn to wander off into the vastness. I haven't seen the Herzog. I think you probably oh. often reminded because of my accent. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but the only thing I, I've seen, I mean, not the very, I've seen Hedzog and I, I admire him deeply. But I, the one that I've seen was, I think, where the Green Ant stream that uh, he shot in Australia with the Aborigines. But I think this, the theme of trying to, uh, you know, you are in an isolated place and you walk further. I think, and that's, I thought was beautiful about Isa's scripts is, I think it's a deeply human urge. And ironically, the first settlement, the first people that ever arrived in Iceland, I might get this historically wrong, either they, because the Vikings obviously arrived and stayed, but I think the very first settlers that just came temporarily were Irish monks that had lived in monasteries, isolated in Ireland and built little rafts and ventured out to find places even further, to isolate even further and live in solitude. So I think that is just an urge. And I think the story, Isa has put this into the script. This, this. And when you were there, I remember we shot one night, we shot on a uh, lake and it was frozen. And we, we normally started shooting at like two o'clock in the afternoon when it got dark around three and then we shot till like two in the morning. And we shot on this frozen lake and at the end of course the northern lights come up and then we all drove back to Reykjavik it was about a 30 minute drive and once you left the lake there was a, a turn and you turn to the right and you would drive to Reykjavik everybody turned right and I thought oh no I'm gonna turn left and then I drove for like a half an hour into absolute nothingness and I left the car it was three o'clock in the morning it was minus 17 degrees and it was absolutely still. I've never experienced any such stillness. I mean, it's like you can feel your atoms move or not move because it's so cold. And then the sky is full of northern lights. So I can personally totally relate to this idea. You know, you are already in a remote place, but you want to go further. And I think she really incorporated it beautifully into the scripts. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if that is a death impulse. I mean, it's put forward as a question as whether it's just actually the most natural impulse to want to be alone. But it's very interesting. When you wanted to go further, is it like wanting to jump off the end of the world or? I just wanted to experience that, that stillness. I think it's just, I find it amazing that people, you know, these Vikings in those open boats, that they jumped in these ships and they rowed away or like Irish monks. Just the idea. I don't know if it's death orientated or if it's just trying to find this sense of communion with your surroundings. Like, coming back to the show, I think one of the themes of the show is also, and you've mentioned it briefly, is this 
feeling of a disconnect. Like you were saying, it's quite apocalyptic and you feel it's like the end of the world because I think you have this disconnection between us and the environment. And that's the biggest contrast to the indigenous people that used to live there, that obviously they lived and had to live connected with their surroundings. We don't. And also I think the scripts and the show tells of great disconnect between people. So not only are we disconnected from our environment, but we also disconnected from each other. And I think maybe Isa would be the one to answer that. Maybe those themes of going out is motivated by the urge to connect. I think that's also the other thing, what I talked about earlier, about the unconscious. You know, Iceland was a peculiar place. They have 320,000 people living there on the island. That's the Icelandic population, about 30,000 more. I think it's a lot of foreign workers there. So say roughly 350,000 on this entire island. Roughly 200,000, 50,000 live in Reykjavik. And it's a very tiny town. It's a tiny town, but like, there's two or three main streets and they are very, very articulate people. They're musicians, composers, poets, you know, considering this actual size of the population, the outreach they have culturally, the imprint they leave, it's quite impressive. And we spent literally, I spent eight months there, you know, and when we started shooting in October and we shot till April and everybody is on this island and everybody has these experiences on the weekends. They go out and they do the little trips to the glaciers and, and or you meet and you eat. And it's a very intimate experience. And I think it influenced everybody on the crew. So it will also influence us when we work, you know. Yes, we were lucky to have some Icelandic creatives that uh, you mentioned poets, uh, uh, Andre Sinners Magnusson, who wrote that wonderful Beautiful, sad poem for the loss of uh, the first glacier was lost in Iceland. Okay. That's a tangent. But you mentioned about connection. And I think we should mention the other way that the characters have these fleeting connections. We should talk about the way sex is filmed. Oh, that's a good question. Wow. What am I going to say now? How, how did you receive that? I've never seen women's sexuality filmed that way. I thought it was so fascinating. We think about men, oh, I'm going to come and get my thing and leave. Oh, and... I see. Oh, I see. See, I, I took that so natural. Yes. Yeah. No, I love that. You know, of course. Oh, yeah. They are very empowered, especially Kaylee. And, you know, to me, that's, it's part of my own worldview. So it didn't surprise me that much. I enjoyed it. I mean, what can one say? You know, oh, that's true, actually, because Jody's character has this relationship as well. See, I have even, I, I just thought they were, I mean, it's hard to say. You cannot say it's fun to shoot. You know, I personally find them touching. I find it very touching. And obviously, as a cinematographer, you deal with a couple of things. It's the, that the feeling that the performers, the actors feel exposed. So you want to create an atmosphere that feels very secure. Then there's certain steps that these days with intimacy coordinators that we have now, that's a certain, the stage, so to say, is, it has to be prepped in a way like all monitors are turned off. Everybody has to walk out who's not really shooting the scene. So to create a, you know, even though lots of people will see it later, but for the moment of creation to create a kind of a safe space, so to say. And I think that both Jody and Kaylee, I don't know. I mean, brave is such a strange word to use because what is brave? I mean, of course, it's brave to show yourself in one way or another so vulnerable to the camera. But I think maybe, I don't know, we never talked about it. That's the other thing. You can become very focused and technical as somebody who captures this. And you don't talk about it very philosophical. So there's the bravery to expose yourself probably as an actor. But there's also maybe the liberation, like you say, to show this and to feel the empowerment. I loved shooting those scenes. 
you know, I think they are very visceral and very strong. There's also a tenderness still there. And there's also a sense of humor in both scenes. You know, I mean, with Jodie, you can probably say that as a spoiler, she still wears her thick socks because they don't ask everybody, you know, they lay her up. So if you take your clothes off, you might forget the odd detail. I thought that was very lovely. And then in the scene with Katie, there's this beautiful moment that she brushes her teeth with her lover's SpongeBob toothbrush, and then she steals it off him. And, you know, so there was, there was force, there was tenderness, but there was also humor. And I think that makes it very human. Yeah, I think that as well. It just was a reversal. I guess we should say they're really strong male performances, but almost... For me, uh, the women are in charge. It's a strange universe. (laughs) And I, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's actually touching for me observing that because I was very lucky. My one of my first international projects I shot was with a director called Antonia Birch, who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago. And she's the reason that I had an international career because she shot something in Germany and actually a film about 9 11 and how the terrorist groups around Mohammed Atta were formed in Germany. It was an HBO, Channel 4 production. And I just, you know, it was one of my first biographically very important work for me. But also, you know, I worked with her as a director early on. So I always, the female voice, so to say, that that has been such a topic in the last four or five years in film. You know, I was exposed to that very, very early at a moment when she was probably one of the very few female directors. And I always enjoy this collaboration a lot. So it didn't strike me as such. It's so unusual, but you're right. They are in power. And, you know, we didn't talk about it practically. It was just, that's how the stories were. We had Isa Lopez, like I said, writing, directing. There was a producer, Mary Jo Winkler. So there's, you know, lots of women around making this. And I enjoyed being with them. But I think I'll pass on your observation. They, Isa would be tremendously excited to have to hear you speak about it like this way. So speaking of Issa Lopez, this season is much different from past seasons specifically because it features two female detectives and the two lead characters. And of course, it's directed by a woman. I want to ask, you've experienced filming these female-oriented stories in the past with Tar. How do you think you use your cinematography to enhance this unique aspect of femininity in the show? Oh, that's exactly good question. I have don't really consciously think about it this way. You know, it's to me, it's just human beings and characters, obviously. I, it didn't strike me either when we shot Tar. Obviously, it was Lydia Tar slash Kate Blanchett being the central character. And Todd Field had written the script, directed and produced the film. We never really talked about it in that sense, that it was unusual or that we that our intent was not connected with the fact that a woman was at the center. I mean, there are practicalities, obviously, when you shoot, you know, how do we... Lydia Tao always had, to me, had two faces. One was her, the, the private, and one was the public, and the public needed a different form. I felt, or we agreed, and we decided in our conversations with Todd that she needed to have a certain luminosity, you know, an extra luminosity as this world-famous director. And in at the private moments when we see her fear and anxiety, then we wanted to feel it, you know, like she's almost being more in an open shadow with very soft lighting, very fragile. And 
And that moment kind of meets in the film and she does this reading of her biography in the la- at the end of the film in New York where she's exposed into a public space, but she has no luminosity anymore. You know, it's gone. She looks fragile. So there are these moments when you probably, I would say, because we have a concept, I think historically a concept of female beauty in art, which is part of the cultural fabric, I think when you photograph a story with a female character at the center, you have to meet those ghosts of the past, if you want to say, or you have to start a conversation within yourself about what you think female beauty is and how you want to depict it, because it's just there. I think John Berger did a beautiful book about, I think it's called The Art of Seeing or something, you know, the legendary book. Ways of Seeing. Yeah, The Ways of Seeing. You know, he talks a lot about the depiction of a female characters in painting. And it's not that I, I think it's more to maybe visit your own unconscious bias because beauty is such a complex thing. You know, somebody can look beautiful by being very fragile. Somebody can look beautiful by being very luminous. And so, and those points, I guess I'll navigate differently than if it were just a male actor, probably. I found that so refreshing. You didn't feel it was so strange that there were so many women and in the whole series. Really, within the process of telling a story, it doesn't matter to me at all. The later bit, I, that is the technicality of the very specific work of a cinematographer. That's why it probably sounded a bit like a subject, because then you have to... If I just think to light a person, if I light a female person, I am exposed to a different bias and tradition because there is a concept of how a woman is photographed and that's supposed to be beautiful. There is a convention. And that is, we have every picture we have seen, you know, every painting we have seen has certain conventions. I think that's just culturally, that's just grown. And probably masculinity has the same, like the hero is being shot from below, so it makes him look stronger. The famous little box that Humphrey Bogart was put on. So I don't say that it's exclusively just with women, but it struck me when you asked me the question that on a storytelling level, I don't think about it at all. But there is a practicality that you have to at least engage in an internal conversation with yourself to have answers for those moments when how do you want to light people. I think for True Detective, what's what's really important because it was quite moody is always to get light into the eyes. So that would drive, and then applies to men and women, but in the way that we let Jodie at times, that was driven by that. They haven't got answers myself. I just find it always interesting. How do you define beauty when you photograph somebody? It seems like a very simple question, but it is actually infinite. I mean, it's going to be going forever. Yeah, and how that's a great mystery. I mean, even if you film something and you show that film to one person, they could see it entirely differently. And that's, you want to keep that open. I think you want that openness. You know, that is what is beautiful about film. Because also Kate and Jodie are women in their late 50s. I think Jodie turned 60. So there is, how do you deal with the fatigue that happens, obviously? And there's this bit of a cinematographer that I think, obviously, we shoot, we shot 112 days, the majority of which I think Jodie was in 110, probably, I don't know the exact numbers, but she was in, you know, she was almost everywhere. So obviously people get tired physically. It's a very exhausting work. People can get sick. So there's also this bit in the work of a cinematographer where we have to obviously Officer Danvers cannot look tired if she had in the prime of her uh, investigation. So there's also this bit 
of beauty, lighting, or cinematography where we have to sometimes help people because they look tired and how to balance that. But on the other hand, it would be a great disservice to storytelling as well to what my concept of cinematography is to make everything look beautiful all the time. You know, then we are ending. I think that's just not interesting. Yes, I can really imagine all the challenges. And we didn't go to how in, inside the ice cave, there must be some challenges that I can't even imagine that as a cinematographer to do that, the claustrophobia that you get and everything. But I, it's wonderful that you say that there is this fatigue because I don't see that. I don't see age in people. I know that sounds really silly. I just, I think that you must, when you're filming, you see energy in a sense, right? And when I watch Jodie Foster, she's full of vulnerability and sadness at times. Many of the characters has had losses, but she is such a great actress, of course, director too, but I just see she has such energy. It is not an age for me. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, what the aim is. The camera will transport that and. I think the decisions we take is how much do we want to elevate it or how much do we want to interfere with it or how much do we want to disappear. In my world, I'd, I would love to convey as much of that energy towards the audience as possible. And then they obviously in the genre of investigation and crime days and because of the supernatural element that is brought within the scripts, obviously then there is the atmosphere of the mysterious. That is where the lighting has then a different job because we want to create the darkness, we want to create the mystery and we want to create the tension and the fear. But in essence, I think it's, if it comes to the performance, it's always about trying to be a conveyor belt where they can put their energy and emotion on and be transported to the audience. Hi, I'm Halia Reingold, and I'm a senior at Chapman University studying film production and peace studies. I absolutely loved listening to Florian speak about his cinematography and collaboration with Issa Lopez on season four of True Detective. It was amazing to hear about how Issa Lopez was able to put such a personal touch on this new season with inspiration for Mexican filmmaking and somewhat of an element of magical realism with what Mia mentioned with the feeling of the dead characters being kind of trapped in purgatory. I think it was incredibly telling just how great of an artist Florian is by how he spoke about his creative decision making, how he interpreted the character's point of views through the camera to enhance the mystery and chase throughout the show, and how he thought about and executed light in an environment that is so naturally dark and vast. My favorite part of our conversation was speaking about his work capturing the women in True Detective and Tar. It was interesting to hear him say that he doesn't really think about filming them as women and feminine, and instead he truly just views them as whole people and captures their characters as he would any other. I think his practices capturing vulnerability within the character's private versus public selves is beautiful, and it made me think about how I've written and portrayed many characters in my own films. I loved how he spoke about capturing the characters to show how they are as humans, how these female characters aren't just about sex and beauty and stereotypical misogynist filmmaking tendencies, but instead he places importance on them being people who have lives and deep connections with each other. Like, he describes what he calls a beautiful moment with Kaylee where she's brushing her teeth with Spongebob toothpaste. And I think that real moments like that are what many male filmmakers unfortunately neglect when writing and capturing authentic female characters. So it's wonderful to hear Florian talk about how he captures these women so beautifully yet realistically, and I'm excited to see season 4 of True Detective and see these elements for myself. Now, back to the interview. 
Yes. And so just a little bit about the sense of, I didn't experience them as flashbacks because you have this process, which I, I love. You're not sure that it is a memory, but it's just very seamless where you can explain it on a technical level. The lighting isn't so vastly changed. You just like enter into their mind. It's mm -hmm. not like a sharp divide where we feel it's a fantasy land or whatever. You know, how did you approach that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's always the question is how strongly do you need to differentiate? I personally feel that we are so educated not to deal with images because we deal with them all day that people are actually, you know, very clever. So you can, you don't need to differentiate. You know, you might, it might be more interesting to have us realize it's a flashback maybe two seconds into the shot and not immediately. So I don't want to create necessarily a photographic layer immediately that says, oh, it's a flashback. Because it's an imprint. And I think the flashbacks that Lisa utilized more imprints that maybe traumatic events have left in people's souls. So we just try to find something that challenges the audience and keeps them on their toes. So basically, we just used slightly different lenses that were a bit more distorted toward the edges, but we kept the look in itself the same. So the color palette was the same. So it was just a slightly different lens to be used for all the stuff that Jody remembers. And then there are the elements where the story is being remembered. You know, the one, the, the, the backstory that centers around this character called Mila, where they had a call and that didn't go well. And that gets revealed throughout the series in different stages. So that stayed truthfully exactly the same. So we didn't change the lenses. We made that it's just felt just like a retelling of a moment, you know. And then the internal ones that Jody and also Navarro, Kaylee Rice character lived through, they were differentiated by, by the use of slightly different lenses. So you touched on this a little bit right before this past question about how you, like the sense of mystery really came into the show this season. And I read an interview with Isa Lopez where she really talked about how in this season she wanted to bring the audience with the story as they went through the mystery and have the audience play a part in figuring it out. So. I wanted to ask, how did you use your work behind the camera to really bring the audience into the mystery with the characters? Yeah, it's an organic process. The question puts me into the into a, an interesting spot because obviously we work to this goal to take everybody on the journey and to create, for lack of better words, immersive viewing experience. But some of it is maybe coming back to like what we spoke about, the fact that the women are so empowered is very natural to me. So it's just the way that I see things. So it's not nothing that I immediately or that I reflect upon consciously. But I mean, there is one thing that, you know, the lighting was supposed to be utilitarian and tell the story of the darkness as a danger. The scope that we touched upon was to make us feel small and realize the vastness of the country. So the entire element of the mysteriousness, the supernatural, that happened a lot by composition. So how do you move the camera through a dark space? You know, what's the POV in the end? I think it's episode three. When they go in, into this place, they, they had these, they call them the dredges that were used for surface mining, like an industrial machine that has been abandoned in the ice and they go in there. How do we follow them? You know, when do we travel in front? When do we travel behind? We really stuck to a subjective subjectivity of the camera in those moments. So if we always would tell the story from the POV of Navarro or Jodie Foster. Those are the decisions you just simply take naturally. 
you know, you wouldn't show the guy they call Clark, they were hunting in this sequence. You wouldn't go and show his journey separately. You would just absolutely stick to only Jody and to Danvers and Navarro. And I think once you've established that as the single most important point of view, then you just stick to it. And that creates this journey that you feel you're a part of, I think. I forgot to mention, we haven't really touched Fiona Shaw's character or Isabella Star LeBlanc's character and how they're all, there's so many healers or people trying to heal themselves in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think Rose was beautiful. What a, you know, what a movie at times and Isabella. I mean, I think that's the, one of the, it was already in the writing, but it's also, I think, one of her achievements as a director. It's a true, and also, I think it speaks of the very, very beautiful quality of Jodie Foster as the lead next to Kaylee. Uh, it was really an ensemble feel. It really felt like the characters were done justice in the writing. They were done justice in the directing, and they were also done justice by Jody is a very, very communicative, very open performer that will help everybody in all those scenes to always land on the same playing field. So it was it was a really a group of people that made something together. We were just joking. That's why I oftentimes that Rose, just as a character, deserves a, a whole series herself because she's just a woman. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of mysteries set up around that and her past life, just all of them. What did you learn in the filming about different indigenous practices? Yeah, we had uh, some people from Alaska. We had a couple of indigenous producers that came before the shoot and they were working heavily with Isa and with Mary Jo Winkler and the cast. At that point, I was absolutely engulfed in trying to get this thing technically off the ground. So I wasn't, I, I couldn't speak of those conversations. What I loved was the singing. I didn't know the, they have a very specific way of singing and the rhythmic singing where breath is a, plays a part. It's, it's been utilized a couple of times. The entire birthing sequence that we shot, those were moments that were a bit stronger where we, we really dealt with. Some of the uh, elderly came down just to see everybody, the way they treat the elderly. It's very respectful. They would always look to them, to what they had to say, and you'd always wait to have them finish their sentences. So you feel there's obviously a very conscious connection towards tradition that is also political because it means something, because it, it has been suppressed and it means something to maintain it. So that was, of course, palpable when we shot. But I, even in something simple, there's the hunter at the beginning, that character that reoccurs. I just loved photographing that man. There were some special people, and, and I think the entire production meant a lot to them. But in a practical way, my work was not so, so connected with that. And it's interesting because there's a moral question. What starts off this whole mystery is that there's these six men from an Alaskan research station that go missing. They're studying. It's just like a cure for everything. We can have longevity, live forever. But the moral questions raised by that is, is a trade-off. There's an environmental degradation. Do you risk killing our planet for the possibility that you can live forever? It's a strange question. It is. Yeah. I mean, that those are the, the themes of our time, isn't it? How much we can do almost, we feel we can do anything. At the same time, we still don't know why we're here and we don't know where we're going, that's for sure. And that probably won't change for a while. And I mean, it's on a, on a very different level, I can say something to that topic probably most interesting is Iceland itself is a very, a very archaic place because of the landscape. Archaic maybe also in terms of the, the, the settlement uh, uh, a thousand years ago and people came in little boats and the entire Viking idea. But it's also 
very fast forward because they have their energy production is geothermal. And I know that uh, Mary Jo Winkler as a producer is very engaged in sustainability and film production, as are the big studios in Hollywood. Everybody's trying to see what can we do. And we all had hybrid or electric cars and you can charge your battery and it's uh, with zero zero two because it's geothermal. So it was an interesting experience to be in that in a place that feels archaic on the one hand, but then really fast forward on another because they just generate most of the energy by using the geothermal energy that they is being provided by the hot springs. And I think the production managed to really get a very favorable balance because there is actually people that will sit down and calculate how much CO2 did we omit in the course of the production. And because we were producing in Iceland, you could reduce the footprints to almost nil. So, And that's a topic. People talk about that. You have meetings about that. I felt it was unfortunate that creating something of beauty creates that much of a footprint. So I'm so glad to hear that it's become more sustainable. It's not something I've heard a lot. So well, um, I mean, when you work on a stage there, you basically, all the electricity is geothermal. So the moment that we came and shot, and we shot maybe a quarter of the production was all on stages. So it was, that goes just, that's already gone. You don't need a generator. No diesel, done. Plug it in, it's geothermal. And then there's other ways. Once you reduce the cars, then obviously a lot of these lights are now, you can also use batteries. So if you charge the battery, it's also geothermal. It was an interesting side effect of shooting. In general, I wonder what your reflections are on the use of AI. And we know that with the recent strikes that was you know built into the contracts. You know, I think in essence, it's interesting that you mentioned Werner Herzog earlier because he pulled a ship through the... Brazilian jungle in Fitzgerald. And I think if I recall it right, he did it. Of course, at the time, there were also means to shoot it miniature or differently. So you, you could have done it differently, but he pulled it through the jungle because he said, that's what you just have to do. And you shoot a ship, you shoot that story. I personally am absolutely convinced that the human part of storytelling, it's part of our fabric, it's part of our culture, it's part of our needs. And there will be elements of whatever the industrialized entertainment complex that will be shaped by AI. But I think in essence, people want to feel and hear and see a human story created by humans. I, I believe in the human spirit. And it's just, I think it's how we want to empower these things and how we want to use them. That's going to be the key decision. I don't feel it as a threat. To me, it feels like a mirror. Just, uh, I think it's a fairy tale of the Brothers Grimm, where there's this princess, and she always looks at her and she says, Mirror, please tell me who's the most beautiful in, the, in my kingdom. And the mirror says it's you. And then one day, I think it says it doesn't. But basically, to me, these machines, the way I see it, but I'm, of course, not a computer specialist, but they feel like a, it's mirroring everything we have put into it, but nothing more. It might be so quick in its answer, like in the fairy tale, or it can dig out a piece of information that would take me three weeks to find on the internet and it'll take it in less than a second. But in essence, it's nothing more. And I think the great wonder that we have, and hopefully that art will always carry, is the big questions as why we're we here and where are we going? And Chat GPT won't definitely answer that for a while. It's fascinating. Yeah, we never did ask that question before in the past, whether our mirrors had consciousness. Uh, yeah, exactly. I hope it'll be cinematography for a little while longer. 
I just think we have to stand up for the the rights of artists, of yeah. course, and the rights of individuals. So thank you, Florian Hofmeister, for your haunting visual storytelling, which invites us to ask these big questions and to reflect on the lives of women and questions around faith and the environment. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Halia Reingold with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Halia Reingold. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anna Delise and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.